That was a portion of The Fast Life, the opening track from Ming, the first album by the David Murray Octet, which came out on the Black Saint label in 1980. That band featured Murray on tenor saxophone and bass clarinet, Henry Threadgill on alto saxophone, Oludara on trumpet, Butch Morris on cornet, George Lewis on trombone, Anthony Davis on piano, Wilbur Morris on bass, and Steve McCall on drums. David Murray is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and this is the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the Osiris podcast network. If this is your first time listening, welcome, and if you've been with us for a while, welcome back. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other podcast aggregators, so I hope you'll subscribe, maybe give us a star rating or write a review. But uh, first and foremost, thank you for listening. You should also consider visiting OsirisPod.com to learn more about the two dozen or so other podcasts they host, which cover all kinds of subjects from music to craft brewing to comedy to writing and much, much more. I'm pretty sure that if you go through their list of programs, you will find at least one or two more that you'll find interesting. And if you want to support Burning Ambulance directly, please consider donating to Patreon.com slash Burning Ambulance. David Murray arrived in New York in the mid-1970s as a student from Pomona College in California and very quickly started playing gigs in the lofts that were hosting most of the really forward-looking music at that time. He can be heard on the Wildflowers compilation, which documented a run of performances at Sam Rivers' Rivby Studio in 1976, and he made his own debut album, Flowers for Albert, around the same time with Oludara, Fred Hopkins on bass, and Philip Wilson on drums. And since then, he's made something like 300 records, and probably more than that. What makes him important, though, is not just his productivity, but his unique voice. He combines old and new school styles in a really striking way, attacking with the whole horn from the bottom to the top of its range, and creating a sound that's part Ben Webster, part Archie Shep, and part Albert Eiler, but ultimately he's unlike anyone else out there. And he's different from a lot of tenor players in that he doesn't also play soprano. He plays tenor and bass clarinet, and that's pretty much it. So in this interview, uh, I'm talking to him about a whole bunch of things. He's got a new album called Blues for Memo, which we discuss a little bit, and we talk about his political views and how they manifest in his art. Uh, about why he's made as many records as he has, about his creative relationship with Dave Burrell, who I interviewed a few episodes ago. We talk about his voice on the tenor saxophone, why he likes the octet format, and a lot of other subjects. I think it's a really interesting interview. It's one I've been looking forward to for a long time. I've always wanted to talk to David Murray, so I hope you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. I'm going to play one more piece of music now. This is Positive Messages from Blues for Memo. This song features Murray on tenor sax, Oren Evans on piano, Jeribu Shahid on bass, and Nasheed Waits on drums. So listen to a little bit of that, and then you'll hear my interview with David Murray. Thank you. 
Hi, Mr. Murray. Hi there. How are you? Good, sir. How are you? You hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear okay. me? I was on another call, that's all. Oh, okay. Yeah. You got a little while? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all set? Yeah, I do. I'll just kind of dive right in, I guess, then. Uh, your band Class Struggle that you're coming to the Village Vanguard with uh, features your son on guitar, mm-hmm. and it also features a pair of brothers in the rhythm section. Do those familial relationships manifest in the music, do you think? Oh, well, they, they, they play pretty well together. Um, I've been knowing my son for as long as I can remember that he's been around. Uh, remember when he started playing guitar, he uh, he wanted to be a he was probably going to be a yeah he was all American in in basketball and uh, then um, um, then he got in the guitar he began to play guitar um, and um, he. His his uh his career I'm sure will be much longer playing guitar than it will playing basketball. <laughs> but uh, he's good at both. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he jumps right in. He's like a he's like a sponge. Uh, he he picks things up very quickly and yeah he has his own music but uh, but uh, he he likes to help me out and I'm, and uh, I kind of keep him as a just to kind of be current, you know. Um, he keeps me in the know of what is really going on out here. Um, so I don't have to trip over things myself. He saves me a lot of, saves me a lot of time in terms of, you know, bringing new ideas to the music. Because, uh, I mean, and new people as well, new audience people. Mm-hmm. Uh, guitar has, a, has another way of... Uh, of bringing people in, whereas uh, saxophones and traditional jazz uh, instruments, because he could play the guitar, you know, like Jimi Hendrix way. Uh, he could, he's, he's, uh, he could play it in a jazz fashion too. So the mixture of that gives me a lot of places I could go, especially if I have a piano as well. Yeah, yeah. And in this, on this gig, we're gonna have Lafayette Gilchrist, who's. Who's on some of my records? I'm sure you've probably heard him on some of my records. He's, he's very, he's very productive and um, he's kind of part of that go-go scene mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in in Baltimore and DC. And uh, he brings something very creative. But uh, the having the, the two brothers, uh, actually, their father is a saxophone player, and um, their mother is very much interested in the arts and. The way they raised them, they they pretty much know the whole tradition. Uh, being a son of a very good saxophone player uh, in Washington, and uh, they both went to that uh, that Duke Ellington High School there. Um, music program is very famous, and they grew up in that. So when they came to New York, they've both been here for some time now, and, and they've matriculated in the New York scene and. Um, you know, as uh, after you finish college, then it's, you know you have to go to another college with the streets. And so yeah, yeah, that's what they're both doing. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're very, they're, they're, the two of them together. Um, I mean, uh, it saves time because uh, everybody seems to know exactly where everybody's coming from. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, things can happen in a not a second, but a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Craig Harris is in the band oh, yes, too, right? Yeah, she's my neighbor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah we did uh, uh, about a year ago. I guess we went up and played at Harvard University. Oh, and um, we played at Harvard University um, in for um, Albert Murray. Um, it was a, it was a, I guess they were celebrating his, oh, they were celebrating his memoirs being submitted to the library mm-hmm. in, in Harvard. So, um, so this is kind of a, so, in, and during that time I wrote a suite for Albert Murray. Um, and on Monday, coming up, uh, Monday, there's a book a party for his second book that's coming out. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so this just the whole idea of class struggle itself is, is there was a poem that was written by Mary Baraka. 
It's called Class Struggle in Music. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's that's the title of the the title of the of the group. I I, I just like the idea of class struggle. It's the second time that I use that as a as a kind of a uh, a beacon. Um, I remember uh, one of my first al- albums was called. Uh, no class conspiracy. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about that actually. Yeah. What, what the the class element? Yeah, that's the second time that, I, that. Well, I mean, it's, it's, no, it means that the people the the people have to uprise against the powers that be. Simply, uh, I guess it's some kind of a, you know, I'm not. I don't want to go into the communist spiel, but it's just uh, basically. The poor against the rich, which is the problem right now in our society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, it's interesting that you poor bring that the up. The poor are getting poor, and the rich are getting richer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You, you don't have to be a political person to really see that. You can just go out on the street and see that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, though, because I don't feel like mm-hmm. you've been somebody who makes your politics explicit in your art in the way like Archie Shep or Baraka did, for example. I mean, am I, you know, am I wrong about mm-hmm. that? Am I hearing the, uh, the wrong records or, you know, tell me? Well, if you if you look at some of my titles, they're always abbreviated, but uh, I get into it. But I don't I don't go on and on and hit people over the head with it. But uh, it's there. Mm-hmm. If you search for it, it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not one to, to, to sit and do a, a speech about it. Yeah, yeah. But but it's there. It's there if you check out some of my titles. Now, are you uh, you're taking this class struggle band into the studio pretty soon, right? Yeah, that's the whole point is to to get that happening. In fact, you know, I'm building a studio. Um, in Portugal. Oh yeah. And I was thinking maybe maybe I might. Well, it's it's not finished. It'll be finished in July. And I'm hoping really to to record it in my studio. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had a house there for ten years, and I'm hoping that uh, that that could be one of my first recordings. And um, I, I know one of the things we're gonna do, Manolito Simonette. You ever heard of him? He's a Cuban guy. I think he's I know gonna the name. He's going to do one recording yeah. there. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's one of the top, you know, like Lowe's Van Van, kind of like that, in that fashion. But, you know, he's like one of the top salsa guys. And, you know, people come to his studio. He produced a lot of records down there. And he has his own studio in Cuba, in Havana. So he's going to he's gonna be, uh, that's going to, that's going to be uh, the groundbreaking uh, recording. Uh, he's doing a project with some some African cats and then some Cuban cats. And uh, they're going to all be in my studio. And, you know, some of them will probably stay in my house and in the hotels there. So that's going to happen. And that's, so it's got to be done by then. And I'm kind of hooking up with a well, with a uh, engineering school that's going to also provide all of the equipment. And so I'm just doing what we're doing right now is this building. And then a few acts I want to produce, I have just lady that I want to produce and and now my daughter's singing and uh, you know things are coming so uh, I'm just preparing for the future mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Mingus wants to get in there and and do his thing um, so once he gets in there I, mean, I, I know it's going to be broken in yeah because he yeah. loves the studio <laughs> oh yeah he's very creative in the studio and uh, the whole thing about playing at the Vanguard with a it's a big size band, relatively large size band for the Vanguard. Cause, I mean, you could get away with playing with a trio there, but I, I really just want to make a statement. You know, that's why the band is. Oh, bro, we're up to. Let's see, trombone, sax, piano, guitar, drums. We're up to six people. That's a lot for the for that stage. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's gonna be full full of sound, and. Um, we're gonna gonna be playing Albert Murray Sweet, and we're gonna play uh, another suite I wrote, Roots and Wings. Uh, that was for a, uh, a film that uh, I did for Dr. Polk, um, and uh, Childhood Education, and that's a nice 
Well, you know, Craig Harris, he played with my early bands, and uh, um, he's a very strong player. I mean, he brings, you know, I mean, there's a lot of solos in the band. I mean, it's not that I'm going to play any less. I'm, um, they inspire me to, to play mm-hmm. hard, and Mingus knows my, my, my music so well. I mean, we usually play every day for a couple of hours here at the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why it's so good for me to be back in New York this time. Uh, it's very nice. Yeah. So your your most recent album, um, what was the rela- mm-hmm. what was your relationship to the guy that it's dedicated to? Oh, he, uh, uh, Mehmet, um, we call him Memo. He, uh, there's a uh, there's an organization called Positive. Uh, um, they, they own this famous club there called Babylon in, in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Babylon. And, uh, you know, um, they are responsible for for bringing jazz to Istanbul, really, uh, over, over the last, uh, wow, 20-some years, 25, maybe 30 years. They, they started with Sun Ra. They... They actually uh, went to. It's a. It's Ahmed and Mamet. They're uh, brothers. Um, uh, they're brothers who who, who uh, went to college in the United States, and uh, they uh, went back and um, just really they, they they provided people for the jazz festival. They had a jazz festival of their own. They brought great acts like Archie Shep, uh, Cassandra Wilson, myself. They brought everybody, Cecil Taylor, um, Sun Ra. They brought jazz. I mean, they really are, are the face of jazz in that country. And so, um, Memo, um, in fact, they invited Butch Morris over there, and he was teaching for three years over there. Wow. Um, and that was interesting at the university. I could have went, but I don't. I didn't want to stay three years. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky Ford was also teaching over there. Um, and I just think that they are the face of jazz uh, in the, in Istanbul. And they're connected with all of the other festivals as well. So um, so when he passed away, I, he passed away uh, just, uh, I guess, a little bit after Butch. So uh, and, and so Butch is also spoken of on the album. It was a dedication. And they were friends, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it, was, it was like that. So, in fact, uh, the album was originally put out on their label, which is very obscure. And so, so my my organization and and my wife Valerie's organization, 3D Family, uh, <coughs> we took it to Motema Records here in New York. Mm-hmm. And put it out again, so that so they could have U.S. distribution. And uh, so it's actually now. So now it's out on Motema. Yeah. And the whole the whole thing was for it to come out simultaneously, but it didn't. Uh, and they 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 drank they drugged their feet a bit. Uh, but now it's out, and it's, it's it's out in the market. People can hear it. Yeah, Jason Moran is on that record, and. I'm curious about that because I feel like you and he kind of both draw from older corners of the jazz tradition. Like he pulls from Fats Waller and stride piano and stuff, whereas a lot of players are sort of bebop and everything after, you know, and I feel like you do that to some degree on the horn as well. So was there a connection on that level for you? Well, yeah. Um, I wish he could have played more on the record, but uh, he was, he was an add on. And uh, he plays one. I think he plays one song on uh, acoustic piano, and then he's on uh, the he's on the Fender Rose as well. He's playing the Fender Rose, but he's not playing through most of the album. Is Orrin, Orrin Evans? Yeah, yeah. He's playing. I mean, I mean, it's probably it's probably listed. I mean, I, it should be listed or what cuts they are. But yeah, he he draws from a large tradition. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to the Kennedy Center and play with him uh, when they when they uh, g- gave uh, some jazz masters to Archie Shep and Pharaoh Sanders and we formed one of Archie Shep's uh, tunes of Blues Attica and, and, a, and, a, and another song 
so um, yeah, I mean, uh, he draws on Fast Wallet tradition. Hey, I was just in New Orleans, and uh, there's, there's a lot of people down there that, that that tradition is very strong. And but it's stronger in New York. You know, it's more defined. Is what you want to know what I mean. The whole piano uh, guard is a stronger tradition in New York. Mm-hmm. The players are stronger. Yeah. Yeah. You that's why. That's why. That's why all the great cats come to New York. John <laughs> Hicks, the, you know, the great John Hicks, uh, you know, go all the way back to all the way back. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you also, I mean, Saul Williams is on that record, and you, you work with vocalists like poets and singers and stuff fairly often. And like you said, you were writing that you wrote this suite for Albert Murray. So. Why are our lyrics and texts important to you musically in that way? Well, sometimes I found that uh, I could write a song. I could write a song uh, that's that's uh, written for some lyrics, and uh, like uh, like I always tell the poets, send me a poem. I'll send you. I'll send you a song. Yeah. Songs that are written with words in mind seem to seem to kind of stand taller. They, uh, it's almost sounds like an anthem. You know, I've even had songs that I've written with, with lyrics, and I've taken the lyrics away. And as melodies, they they stand taller even. Mm-hmm. They sound stronger. The foundation of a word, uh, and when you play it with conviction. If you believe in those words, um, somehow it's a very strong melodies, and sometimes, I, like I said, I take the I take the words out. I see what you mean, because I mean, <laughs> I was I was surprised one time. I was I was talking to Ornette Coleman, and I was surprised to find out how many of his compositions also had lyrics. Yeah, yeah, because uh, that's that's the way people think human beings. We're, we're a vocal tribe of people, and uh, uh, I guess uh, it's like uh, somewhere, somewhere in that on that record, Saul Williams said, "You can tell us of a new civilization is always, it always starts with language." So language is very important. Yeah, it's just human beings and the evolution of human beings, you know, from the first grunt to the to the to the best poet, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you were raised in a, a religious family, right? Your parents were Baptists. No, we're we're Pentecostal. Uh, we're a Church of God in Christ. Uh huh. And how do you, how do you think that has nothing, manifested? Nothing, nothing, nothing like Baptist. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, I was raised mm-hmm. Catholic, so I don't really know the difference between the different groups of Protestants. So. I went. I went. I went to. I went to a Catholic high school, uh, 11th and 12th grade, St. Mary's, St. Mary's Prep School in uh, Albany, in Berkeley, near Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I had a good experience in the Catholic school. <laughs> My father told me. Uh, he says it's okay for you to go to school there and and go on the church with the Christian brothers there, but uh, just don't wrestle with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how does uh, how does spirituality sort of manifest in your music? I mean, I know you've recorded spirituals. Hold on, hold on a second. Yep. Excuse me. Okay, I'm sorry. What so, oh, I said I know you've recorded spirituals in the past, but how important is spirituality and stuff to your voice generally on the horn? Do you think? Oh, well, I mean, uh, I remember the day I got my my first saxophone. The guy came in, Phil Hardyman, came in, came in our class, and uh, we had, no, actually we had to go into a big music room, and he played a low note on the piano, and he played a high note, and then, uh, and then he uh, said, "Which one was high?" And I said, "High," and so I got a saxophone. And the guys who said it was low, they got cellos. <laughs> and anyway. So I so I got an alto saxophone and I just remember that that day when I took it home. There was a loaner from the school when I took it home. 
I had to go to church that night, and you know my brother had already been playing the clarinet for for a few, few years, and my cousin had been playing trumpet. So every we had everything. My mother had on piano, and my dad was playing guitars. You know, so I was like playing bongos or something because I wasn't old enough to really play. But I I kind of knew I had music in me, but uh, I, I mean I had taken some piano lessons before uh, from my mom and from I had a piano teacher down the street that she sent me to that Mrs. Kennan who who played like stride piano New Orleans kind of piano St. Louis woman blues piano and her, her son played the organ they both were teachers in our neighborhood and uh, so anyway I I took it to the church the first night I got it and I played in the band and uh, yeah, I was even the even the reverend commented. He says, "Oh yeah, it's a young David's got a saxophone." I'm, I was probably I was playing a lot of squeaks. Probably sounding like probably sounding like some of the squeaks I play now. <laughs> I probably sounded like uh, avant garde or something. He says that young David when he learns how to play it, it's gonna be he's gonna, he's very exuberant. So anyway, I got my props the first night, but after about I swear after about two weeks, I was in it. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm and that kind of that kind of uh uh kind of sped up my uh, kind of exacerbated my uh well sped it up my progression in music uh, and then with the what was going on in school all the music I, I was just excited and of course I wanted to start a band after I had it for a week. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You get excited when you're a kid. Anyway, everybody knew that there was promise there for me, so I, I, I had an easy way of getting in, you know, because my, my brother had paved the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My brother just retired, and, and he's, he's back. To, he wants to play the piano now. Oh yeah, he's practicing. He's practicing piano two hours a day now. It's funny. Yeah. When you uh, when you first came to New York in the first couple of years there, you played with Lester Bowie a little bit, and I know he was known as much as a talented musician. He was also known as being a very sharp business guy. Did he give you any advice early on about how to like navigate the industry and stuff like that? No, well, I just hired I just hired him to play on one song on, on one record. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we wasn't really that. We wasn't really that much friends. I Quickly. mean, if you'd have said somebody else, if you'd have said somebody else's name, it would be. I'd give you more uh, rhythm on that question. But I mean, me and Lester really, really that were that big of friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were, there were people that were around me that were much more influential. Well, who was uh, who was your sort of crew when you first hit New York? Well, Ray Anderson on trombone, you know. Uh, I stayed at Ray's house uh, for the first for about a month, uh, and that was great. And then there were people like I, because I came when I came to New York, I came on independent study from Pomona College, mm -hmm. and I I had it in my independent study. Uh, one of my professors was Stanley Crouch, and the other one, Bobby Bradford, and uh, Dr. William Russell, the head of the music department. And uh, I came and interviewed. Four artists: uh, John Cage, Cecil Taylor, Arnett Coleman, and uh, McCoy Tyner. So that was my quest, and, and they they were all in their own way very helpful to me uh, in my in my uh, entering in my career. You know, people associated with them. I, I, I met uh, Billy Higgins and Dewey Redman. Dewey was a guy that said, "Put on the pencil and pick up the saxophone." Oh, I, which I was, I was going to do anyway. Mm. So, yeah, I had to early. I had, I wanted to be a, a kind of a, some kind of writer or poet at that time too, um, which I didn't pursue. But uh, I, I think I could have had two careers. But the music took over. Next thing I know, making records and this and that and. And uh, then the more records and more tours and, you know, there were a lot of people to help me on the way, um, you know, Blewett, Lake, Pimp Hill, you know, we won the World Sax Quartet. I mean, these are my mentors. These are, 
you know, Arthur Blythe, I followed Arthur Blythe to New York. I mean, these are the people that I was surrounded by. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met Lester Bowie uh, through uh, Charles Bobo Shaw and people like that, you know. Um, but we weren't really friends that much. I was, as far as trumpet players, I was more, I was more uh, in tune with, uh, with uh, Olu Dara. Right. What he right. was doing, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and he was in your uh, your octet. Yeah, but I I had uh, when we after they did Wildflowers, he had a recording that went on for a long time, and he was he he Olu Dar was was a big influence on me as far as music. Yeah, you uh, initially you were recording for labels like India Navigation and Hat Hut and like small indie labels. Were you ever approached? by like Impulse, Blue Note, Verve, labels like that? Well, um, I hooked up with Bob Phil, and Bob Bob took me to uh, CBS, uh, Epic, mm-hmm. and I did that one that one album, Ming Samba, with uh, CBS, because they had, they had, Epic had to be artists at one time. They had hired uh, Bobby Enriquez and Ornette Coleman and myself at the same time. And um, so all of them, um, all of us, after we recorded one album, we both left there and went on because they didn't, they didn't fulfill their, their uh, stipulation in the contract for the overcall period. After 90 days after you've given the master, you're supposed to contell you, you're supposed to uh, they're supposed to tell you if you can continue with this six-year contract that you're saying at the time. So um, um, Bob brought it to my attention. He said, well, did you? Did they contact you? I said, no. He says, well, look. And so he was starting at that time. Bob was starting uh, Red Baron records. Mm-hmm. You remember Red Baron? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, and that was Bob's company because, you know, Bob, when I started dealing with Bob, he was he was at uh, at uh, what's that company um, that did Love Supreme because he produced the Love Supreme. Right. Okay. So he went from Impulse to was it Indian Navigation right. or the Yeah. All all those great records from Impulse those those were from Bob Thiel's production. You know all the train stuff over there was Bob Thiel. So uh, I was actually his last artist uh, after Train. I was about to last started, so I went over to, I went over to, uh, to uh, Red Baron, and I had a six con, six for record contract with him, and he actually died uh, when I was supposed to be in the studio on the sixth one, and so that was the end of it, end of my big record company uh, exploits, and uh, after Bob died. Uh, there seemed to be no point. I mean, that was the end of the, one of the big money record dates, or at least for me. Mm-hmm. And that's when I left. That's when I left New York and went to Paris. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now you you had really long relationships with uh, Black Saint, and then later with D.I.W. Did those guys just kind of let you do whatever you wanted? Because you made a tremendous number of records. Yeah, uh, of course, I did exactly what I wanted. What I did was uh, I'd take a band on the road, uh, try to get the band to sound good over a six- to eight-week period, and and then go into the studio in, in Milano. Uh, then I, when, I, when I get back to New York, I'd go in the Vanguard, I'd go into a Sweet Bays or something, and then play that music out. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I do it the other way around. I'd go on tour, then I'd go into the Vanguard, and then go into the studio if I was going to record in New York. I would uh, uh, that Sunday. I'd start recording around maybe the Saturday and the Sunday, and then going to, going into Monday and Tuesday. Uh, I just sometimes I would just finish the Sunday and we go in the studio on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And mm-hmm. get that because you got to get the music. My my whole thing with uh, record companies, the, the timing was so important because the band had to, the band had to be hot before it got in the studio. You know, we we would have had to play whatever music that I wrote for the octet or whatever band might have been 
it was important that that music be played out in front of people for a long time before you went into the studio or with it. You know, you listen to some records and guys sound like, there's some record dates where guys sound like they just met in the studio. And I, 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 I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't, I don't want my music to sound like that. I want it to sound familiar. Uh, I wanted guys to know the music by heart. Uh, although we had music, uh, I really wanted music to be more spontaneous than just meeting some stuff for the first time and then putting it on, putting it out for the public to, to, to decipher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious though, so, because and, you, and so, mm-hmm. well, you were putting out so many records. I mean, sometimes like a half dozen a year. So, like, I feel like if you make one record a year, you sort of give it time to have a commercial impact and find an audience. But if you make a ton of them, it feels like there's it's too much for people to deal with. Did you ever get that impression? That Actually, you, I, there was there was probably three more records a year that I wanted to do. <laughs> So you just so you weren't that concerned necessarily whether you know you were uh, whether each one was like reaching your whole audience or whatever. Well, you know, I mean, these companies they weren't putting me on the road. I was putting myself on the road. Uh huh. So I actually, I actually didn't care. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold back my production because of them. They only paid me to do a record. They didn't they didn't sponsor my tours. That was some, some other kind of business. So, no, I didn't. To be honest, no. Now I do have a question. I got, I got, I got, a, I got a lot of flack for it. Don't think I didn't. Uh-huh. I got a lot of flack for. Oh, you must have made a record every ten days. I've heard all kind of crap. But at the same time, well, basically, there were a lot of people. There were a lot of people that were jealous of me, of me for, for my production during that time, and that's fine too. But as you have to understand that I was the face of. Oh, in of uh, DIW for uh, for thirty records over a period of two contracts. I was on a ten-year period. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, now those records are out and they're done. They're done very well. I I I followed each one of those records all the way to the pressing. Uh, so I'm proud of each one of them. Mm-hmm. And I I couldn't do them any better. But at the same time, when all these downloads come up, guess who's at the top of the heap? It's me. It's me who has more catalog. Duke Ellington has 535 records. I got about 200 or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm below him, but I'm above a lot of other people. Yeah. So the music is out there. and I'm, I'm not ashamed that, that it might have been too much in one period. I'm not, no, I'm, I'm I, I, I worked very hard to, to, accumulate that volume of music so um and the fact is these days you can't find them you know you can't find a lot of them i have people come and come with a pack of style i mean i come with 50 records for me to sign luckily they have them now in the vinyl um so um and a lot of them have become some kind of underground classics. And I, I'm very proud of that. So I, I'm not going to sit here and let you reprimand me about how many records I did. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about your DIW records because it's interesting. They, are, Those are the only albums from DIW that are streaming on Spotify. And is that because you have the masters, or is there some special arrangement going on, or what? Do you know what the story is there? Well, they're just they're just uh, uh, we're 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 in very close contact with with the DIW, and they they stick to their word more than I mean Giovanni Bonadrini has turned this company over to his son. They're not keeping up with them, and then they his son sold it for very little money. Uh, next thing I know, I see all my octets in one box, and they're selling one box for twenty bucks. See, so I mean, those people, like um, Giovanni Bonagini was as a person in his in his life, and he's still alive. Um, you know, when you, when it goes to the next generation, it loses its luster. You know, um, they don't keep up with the DIW is 
DRW is a functioning company. It's like national. They they have 19 stores around around Tokyo. Uh, and, and they sell refrigerators. They sell stereo equipment. They high end high end uh, uh, audio equipment. Uh, and I was for 12 years, nearly 12 years. I was the face of them, and so they're they're a company of uh, Mr. Hirohatu. Uh, he, he, they're a company that's functioning, and they when they dabbled in records, they 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 do their business uh, as Japanese people businesses go. Uh, he's the CEO, and he he keeps he keeps uh, an account, you know. Mm-hmm. If I need something from them, they're always there. To, even though I'm not with them anymore, they don't actually put out records, jazz records. Anymore. That was their. I was their experiment, and uh, and that's over. But they still keep up. Yeah. They do yeah. their work, you know. They they're not running from me. I mean, I got lawyers chasing a lot of people, but not them. <laughs> you uh, you made five albums in. I think it was 88 with the same band with Dave Burrell, Fred Hopkins, and Ralph Peterson. The Spirituals, Tenors, the, uh, Ballads, I think was another one. How long were you in the studio to do all that material? Uh, I think we did it in two sessions. And, and um, uh, we, I think going back to that time, if you look at the dates, there might be two, uh, two 10 day periods. That we did them all. Yeah. Huh. Two separate, two separate 10-day periods to do five albums. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. You check the date. Because, you know, we did, sometimes we did an album, and it, it'd take you, we'd, we'd be in the studio for a week. We comes every day, and we, we, and we, but each one of them had a, it wasn't like we were just recording songs. Each one of them, uh, was thought about. Oh, this one is a ballad. This is ballad for bass clarinet. This one is going to be for something else. And this one we're going to use Branford. You know, that's mm-hmm. right. So they all they weren't just random. It wasn't random. I had a whole chart. I even saved some. I have a chart of what albums and what we're going to, what songs are going to go on each album. It's methodical. Yeah, yeah. You've you've done a lot of stuff with Dave Burrell. You have a relationship with him that goes back a long way. What do you uh, What do you think is the bond between the two of you musically? Well, brother to brother, brother to brother. Uh, actually, I ended up recording all of his Windward passages on all of my records. He's a great composer, and uh, although we don't play together to, today. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I had to move on from him. I mean, I mean, uh, one piano player for a certain period of time is good, but then you got to leave him because the piano takes up a lot of space on a record, and so you have to. I remember he had an argument with uh, Lafayette. He says, "Oh, you the guy who took my gig." <laughs> yeah, and Lafayette said, "I can take your gig, man." He said, and then Dave said, "Well, you know, you you know, Dave is gonna fire you. Know Dave is gonna fire you soon." I said, "Well," and I said, "Lafayette told me that." I said, "Yeah, well, that's how it is being a piano player. That's why you got to make your own records. <laughs> you got to get your own band because you know when a piano is on a record, it takes up the whole vibration of the record. You know, so." After that period, I probably I'm, I might not have played with Dave anymore. I I mean I even had to fire the great John Hicks. <laughs> Come on now, <laughs> and Don Pullen. I mean I I fired some of the best pianos, and I take pride in it, being able to pull myself away from those great piano players. But you, if you want to be a leader with longevity, you have to uh, pull yourself away from, even from great musicians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you've recorded some of your compositions multiple times, like 3D Family, Santa Barbara and Crenshaw Follies, Ming, Morning Song, Flowers for Albert. 
What uh, what draws you back to a tune once you've recorded it, you know, once already? Well, um, the, the aggregation of the band, the popularity of the song. It's the song that people call for. Silence Albert is is a uh, is a. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many times they had to ask in, in a mellow tone or uh, from a Duke song. Duke uh, take the eight train by Billy Strayhorn. I mean, he had to, you know, do nothing till you hear from me. I mean, people call for those songs, and, and sometimes you get tired of playing the same arrangement, and maybe you wanted to do a different arrangement for them. So when they call for it, you have you have that arrangement for that band that you're with. Mm-hmm. So uh, I recorded the Flowers of Albert thirteen times, <laughs> and that's the most recorded of my. But uh, all the arrangements are quite different if you listen to them. Yeah. And I'll what about uh, what about body and soul? I even, How many I, you times? Know, I, I'm I, sorry. I, I, I bet I bet you haven't heard I bet you haven't heard my reggae version. No, no. Yeah, I recorded it with the Scatterlights. Oh, okay, okay. So, so that's something for you to go look up. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tommy McCook. I mean the original Scatterlights. Yeah. Left the boobies on left the boobies on that record. And uh um was Monte Monte Alexander? Uh-huh. He's on that record too. Huh. So that's a you could go look that up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some trivia for you. Man. So the song Body and Soul, how many times do you think you've recorded that and what do you get out of it? What does it mean to I you? Have, I, haven't, I haven't recorded Body and Soul that much. Uh, maybe once or twice, as far as I know. Uh, maybe twice. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I thought there were more than that, but I wasn't sure. Uh, maybe maybe on, a, on a live live record or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember when uh, I was very excited one day when... Uh, and Downbeat came out and they had my transcription, Body and Soul. And I had an old transcription of Coleman Hawkins. I used to put them next to each other uh, and uh, analyze them, you know. Mm-hmm. I was very excited when they put my version of it. In other, in other words, that you could play uh, that you could play a version of a great master of the saxophone and you sound like yourself. To me, that's when I feel like I had actually really hit it as far as the individual and the saxophone have my own sound. That I challenged a great master and maybe took it a little further. That was uh, that was one of my personal triumphs when when that came out in downbeat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like your voice on the tenor, that that's why I feel like that song is important, is because I feel like your voice on the tenor is kind of pre-Coltrane, in a sense. Like you're pulling well, from swing-era players and stuff like that and then adding the extreme effects, you know, on the top, like the squealing and stuff like that. So, I mean, how did that sound kind of come together for you? Uh, well, that's the stuff that I was playing the first thing I got on the saxophone. That's what the preacher was talking about. <laughs> but uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I just think that when you have when you have a song that has a tradition of a great master playing it, uh, you won't become great until you challenge that master and and really really try to bring something to the song maybe that they that 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 the, the time that they were living in uh, uh, let them go let them let them uh, play themselves but at a certain time I mean there, there were certain things that Coleman Hawker wouldn't play but we wouldn't even play body and soul had it not been for Coleman Hawker I was I, and also at the same time I, it was important for me to because I always had one foot in the avant-garde and one one foot in the tradition, and then one foot in the in beyond. You know that makes me have three feet. <laughs> but uh, 
I, I, it was important for me not to be completely associated with the, uh, the all I could do is play this music that they labeled avant-garde. I had to step in order to make some money and raise a family. I, I had to, I had to go to different levels of music. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what do you think attracts you to the kind of extreme upper register of the tenor's range? What you know? Why is that such an expressive tool for you? Well, basically, it's multiphonics. Uh, you know, everybody. I mean, if you want to do, do the book, uh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie Harris wrote the book on, on uh, false fingerings. But then there's, you know, there's another octave pass there, um, you know, that you can play if you, if you, if you in tune with your saxophone. Uh, and uh, the harmonic series is important. And when you exploit that, you're taking it into a range, and that's why. That's why Albert Island was so important because he's the first cat that came out to really had had that mastered where he played the whole saxophone, not just the bottom of it, but he used the, he used the, the, the harmonics of the saxophone, low B flat, to make to make the whole horn just sing and scream and sing and and, and screech and and undulate and move and just. He challenged with the he challenged the horn itself, and uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm playing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to know. I mean, like with Magic Johnson, when he would go up in the air, he he had no idea who he was gonna pass it to, or if he was gonna shoot. Somebody would get it. That's improvisation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, despite your style on the tenor. You don't play soprano, which a lot of other tenors players do. Like, why? Why is that? Why did you never, you know, try both? I had, I had one, but I sold it. I like soprano. I just don't have one. And uh, I think I did record on soprano once. I recorded Bechet's Bounce. Mm-hmm. Did you hear that one? No, no, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, I've only ever heard you. Like I think on tenor and I, on bass I, I, clarinet. I sound. I I I uh, I think I uh, yeah, I did record it. Uh, it's on one of my uh, albums, um, one of my octet albums, I think. But I sounded like uh, Sidney Bechet, and I didn't like sounding like somebody. So that's probably why I didn't play anymore. Mm. Yeah, because I I mean, for me, when it comes to soprano, the 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 sound that I hear, um, that's why I don't play alto either, because I. When I, every time I played the alto, I would sound like, uh, well, when I was young, I, I, I don't know about now, but I don't play it now. But I would always sound like either Arthur Blythe or Ornette Coleman. Those were my two favorite sax players, guys that I knew. And so when I sounded like them, I said, oh, no, this ain't my horn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah. Can't, get, I can't get me out of the, the, the horn. And, and to me, that meant put it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I can't get me out of this horn, it's not for me. That's why I'm not known as a multi-readist because I uh, I couldn't hear my own voice in that horn. Uh, I'd rather just play those the two that where my voice comes out the strongest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and let the other ones go. There's, other, there's a lot of other people that could do that. I, there are people who specialize in that, and and, and they're not me. So. Mm-hmm. I won't go down. I won't go down for being a multi-instrumentalist. <laughs> <laughs> you should have heard me play the flute. I was really terrible. <laughs> I had to learn. <laughs> James Newton. James Newton got me when I went to college to Pomona to get into the music department. I had to. I had to audition on flute because you know at that time you couldn't major in John Coltrane like you can now in, in college. You know. Yeah. So I had to I had to play Foray. So James was like, man, oh boy, he put me through it. I had to, I had to play Foray and I had to get my my embouchure together. I had to, had to take out the vibrato and I, you know, I, boy, I worked so hard just just to pass, you know. And I was and that's and that's how I became the first jazz musician at Pomona College. And then after that, 
we started the big band and I got Bobby to come there and teach and he's just retiring this year. And that was 1973. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's how we got Bobby to come and run the big band there. And then, then so I, I personally started the jazz program at Pomona College and it's still in place. Huh. It's, it's interesting to me what, you know, with what we're talking about, about the tradition and stuff like that, that You've played with Pharaoh Sanders and Archie Shep, but I'm not aware of you working with more traditional players like, I don't know, George Coleman or Jimmy Heath or somebody like that. I mean, are they just in a different lane from you, do you think? Or Well, you're not gonna out you're not gonna outdo George Coleman playing playing Bebop. That's damn sure. I played with on I played with uh, George Coleman on that tenor, tenor barrel that we had one time up at Lincoln Center. Other than that, that was the only time I played with him. Uh, I admire him uh, greatly. Um, you know, I mean, uh, those guys, some of those guys, they look at me like like I was from outer space. <laughs> so it's cool. I mean, you know, I, I'll, I'll I'll play with anybody who wants to play with me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go out my way to uh, to. To, to to come out of my own world just to play a bebop gig. Right, right. But do you feel like you're still considered an outsider in a lot of ways? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm leading the way. Oh heck yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like it that way. Uh, you know, uh, I'll go down for for being a little different. Uh, you know. You know, people like Ornette Coleman, you know, they, you get to be Ornette Coleman for sticking to your guns. Mm-hmm. You know, and see, that's, I, I, I took a lot from Ornette in that way. And Cecil Taylor, who just passed away. You know, you got to stick to your guns. Otherwise, nobody, nobody else is going to stick to them for you. You got to have confidence in yourself. And there are a lot of people following me. I mean, I hear it in the street. Uh, I hear people playing me in New York in clubs, you know. And if you want to learn how to play the saxophone, the way I see it, you have to come to me. Just like I had to go through Sonny, mm-hmm. Colin Hawkins, and all Paul Gonzalez. I had to go through that. I had to go through that library to get to me. So now some people they have to come to me. Yeah, that's just how it is. That's just how. And that's not an ego trip. That's just how it is. You know, you pay tribute to your great masters. And then maybe one day you'll become one. Mm-hmm. That's my hope. So if I so if I turn off my lane now, I've confused people. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask a little bit about your octet records because those were some of the first things that I heard of yours. And... An octet is not really that common a format for a band. So, what does you know? What does it give you that lineup that other, you know, regular band lineups don't give you? Well, it's a standing, it's a standing big band. It's a standing small big band to me. If I can't get my big band on, you know, in the big band, most of the time you're sitting down, and the music sounds different when you sit down. But if you have five cats in a line playing in front of a rhythm section. That to me is the most. It's just kind of going back to like when you, like Louis Armstrong, thank you, John Bauer, and all those guys. They played, and they finally there's like eight guys on the trumpet. They got a trumpet, they got a trombone, they got a clarinet, they got a you know alto and a tenor, a soprano. You know, I mean, those guys are up there blowing. I mean, it's powerful uh, to have a. It's kind of like uh, you know, it's powerful to have a eight guys that are thinking the same way and five of them have horns and every once in a while you play something together and then they go off on their own tangent it's it's, it's more exciting than like say a, uh, a group with uh, a trombone and saxophone like what I have now I wish I wish I could put my octet on, on the stage at the vanguard but I can't, I can't pay everybody <laughs> Probably couldn't fit everybody. I mean, huh? Pro- I couldn't even fit. I couldn't even fit everybody. Yeah, yeah. 
the uh, I guess but, but, I mean next to next to a big band, which to me is the ultimate that you could have. I mean, I mean Duke Ellington, they got to a city, and the people that show up to pick them up, they put the whole band in five taxis. <laughs> that was his thing. Mm-hmm. Five taxis for the whole band and and the instruments, including the bass and drums. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I mean that's that's a guy who had a plan. At one time, he had his own train car, like Cab Calloway. He Cab Calloway was first. Yeah, yeah. I guess my last question is, you you moved to Paris. You lived in Paris for a long time. And twenty years, and then you came back here. Given, yeah, but I was still making, I was still making records, I was still making records with Justin Time when I was over there, and uh, you know, uh, I, I went to a lot of places and put jazz and a lot of different kinds of folk music when I was in Paris, and that that was that was the draw for me. Mm-hmm. To, uh, but given the state of the U.S. now and the state of the music industry, where it seems like jazz is actually more viable in Europe, I mean, are you sorry you came back? Oh no, no. <laughs> I, I still, my family's still in Paris. I, 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 I have to go, even though, even though I'm here at this apartment now, I'll, I'm there. I'm there half the time, and when I'm not there, I'm in Portugal. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm moving a lot, my friend. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be stuck here in New York either. And, uh, but uh, you know, you got to keep moving. That's that's my concept. But, but I need to be in New York, but I don't want to be stuck here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good to have an outlet. I wish I had a house in California too. That would be the ultimate. That's my next goal. Okay, that was my interview with David Murray, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast, which, as I mentioned up top, is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Visit OsirisPod.com to check out all their other shows, see if any of them appeal to you, and again, please consider donating to Patreon.com slash Burning Ambulance to support this podcast directly. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one. Oh, sorry.